The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us, so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord, because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to the land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this the, Lord, at this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Thank you, and uh, beautifully read. Um, almost don't need to say anything. How about we pray, and uh, let's talk about this passage. Father, we thank you so much that you speak to us, and that you show us what you are like, and you show us how to know you. We pray, Father, as you address us in your word this morning, uh, we pray that we would respond with trust and with obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, if we haven't met before, my name's Nick, and uh, I work here part-time as a, a student's pastor, particularly with the, um, the uni students in the evenings, uh, and on campus as well with ES, and uh, have the privilege of opening up Jonah with us over the next three weeks. Uh, now, Jonah is a story, and I quite like reading stories. Um, at the moment, I'm reading through The Lord of the Rings, uh, which I've come back to a number of times over the years, because it's a really good story. And uh, my guess is that when I'm talking about stories, I'm not alone, that most of us enjoy reading or watching or hearing stories of some kind, whether they're stories about um, adventure or just stories about our friends or stories about crime or stories about romance. Uh, stories are, 
are fun. They're interesting, aren't they? Now, I'm not an English student, and if you are, you can correct me, but I think one of the things that makes a good story uh, is what's left out of a story. Uh, good authors are uh, careful not just about what they put in, but what they choose not to include. And uh, the gaps in a story, the things that are left unexplained or ambiguous or kind of open for the reader to ponder, um, they're some of the things that kind of keep us going, that make us go, what's going to happen next? How's it all going to end? And get our minds working. Uh, so, for instance, I quite like Harry Potter. And uh, one of the great moments in the Harry Potter series is when Harry... Uh, sorry, actually, spoiler alert here. If you, if you haven't read it and you'd like to, block your ears because uh, I think you've had enough time, but this is a big reveal. Uh, one of the great moments in the series is when Severus Snape turns out to be a decent bloke. And um, the genius of that moment is that J.K. Rowling's left enough space, enough gaps around his motives and his background and all the things that he um, kind of led up to that moment so that we spend the whole series wondering with Harry and Ron and Hermione whether he is, on the one hand, um, a faithful defender against the dark arts with some significant character flaws, or Voldemort's most trusted servant. And it could really go either way, uh, and in that moment we kind of find out. It's that, um, that ambiguity that's left until the last minute that makes it interesting. And over the next three weeks we're going to dive together into the book of Jonah, uh, and it's a book that I've really enjoyed thinking about. I found it personally challenging. But one of the things I've really appreciated is the deliberate ambiguity with which Jonah's presented to us. Uh, the writer just doesn't tell us everything that there is to know about Jonah's motives, his thoughts, his feelings in every situation. Uh, there's open questions left about his character right until the end of the story, and even then, they're not fully resolved. You've got to think, why does the writer do that? Uh, is it just for entertainment? Well, I think since this book has made it into our Bibles and is God's word, I think it's not just entertainment. Rather, I think God uses this technique to make us ask questions of Jonah, to ponder what he's like, and in turn to ask questions of ourselves. And as we see some of the kind of inconsistencies and strangeness and even the ugliness of Jonah's character, uh, that God actually uses that to confront our own inconsistencies and our own strangeness and ugliness, particularly in the way that we relate towards people that God's made and desires to save. Now, uh, getting a little bit ahead of ourselves at this point, so... Since Jonah's uses uh, questions in this way, what we're going to do in this talk, uh, rather than a whole set of points, I've got a whole set of questions. And these questions really just emerge as we read along. Uh, and we'll find that some of the later questions help us answer the early ones. But we're just going to work through the different questions that emerge across chapter one. Uh, and you'll see those on your handout, and you can use that to follow along. And so let's, uh, let's get into it. Question one, why does jo God send Jonah to Nineveh? And uh, this first question is not actually about Jonah. It's about God. And this would have been, I think, a particularly big question for the first people to hear the book. Uh, as New Testament readers, we've got a bit of a kind of um, some clues about why God might send Jonah to Nineveh. But imagine for a sec that you're an Israelite and uh, you're living several centuries before uh, Christ and you're at the temple and the reading for the day is Jonah chapter 1. And... Uh, you hear verse 1, you've never heard it before. Uh, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son 
of Amitai. Now, what do you think at that moment? I think you'd probably think, I know where this is going. This is how some of the other prophets start. This is a, a phrase that comes in some of the other prophets. Jonah is going to get a word from the Lord and he's going to take that and faithfully deliver it to Israel. That's how the story is going to unfold. That's what happens on the other 78 occasions when uh, you know, you've counted them, uh, when that kind of phrase is used in the Old Testament. And then you hear verse 2. Uh, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. And I think if you were sitting there hearing that for the first time, you'd kind of think, what? Huh? That's weird. Why would God want Jonah to go to Nineveh? And I think the thing that's weird is not so much the idea that Nineveh uh, was evil or that God might have something to say about that, uh, because other prophets had spoken about Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. So Nahum, for instance, had prophesied about Nineveh's destruction uh, because Nineveh was known for its remarkable evil. Uh, we've got this slide uh, up here. Nineveh's big issue was proud, cruel bloodshed. Uh, and on screen there's a, a frieze which was taken from Nineveh's ruins. And this is a kind of uh, family photo, a community mural that they stuck on the wall to say, uh, welcome to Nineveh, this is what we're like. And uh, if you look closely, you can see them torturing their enemies. That's what they were proud about. That's what they wanted people to know. Uh, they were a conquering global superpower who were actually guilty of the blood of many nations and they were hungry for land. And as an Israelite, it probably wasn't surprising that God had something to say about that. But what is weird is that God told Jonah to go. See, when Nahum prophesied, he spoke to Israel from the, the comfortable vantage point of Mount Zion, looking out over Israel, speaking to Israel. Uh, no other prophet, except perhaps Elijah, was really told to go anywhere. So why does Jonah need to go? Why can't he just tell Israel about the word to Nineveh? And perhaps more unsettlingly, uh, what does that suggest about God's intentions for Nineveh? And why are we told that this Nineveh uh, is a great city, a big city? A detail kind of seems irrelevant for its destruction. Why does God send Jonah to Nineveh? Well, question two, why does Jonah run away? Uh, we reach another surprise as we get to verse three. And uh, I'm just going to use uh, a different translation, the ESV here, just because it brings this point a little bit clearer. So chapter one, verse two, uh, we have arise, go to Nineveh, Jonah. And then in 1 verse 3, and Jonah rose, great, to flee. Oh. See, it's not until several words in that you kind of catch what's happened. Uh, Jonah's commanded to get up and go, and he gets up and goes in completely the wrong direction. And in case it's not clear by this point, the writer, writer then goes to real pains to emphasize that Jonah is going as far away as he possibly can, not just from Nineveh, but away from the Lord himself. And so we have Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went aboard and sailed to Tarshish to flee from the presence of the Lord. It's very obvious uh, that Jonah has not just misunderstood God. He hasn't just gone in the wrong direction by accident. Uh, he has quite deliberately decided he's not going to Nineveh. But what the writer hasn't made clear is why. 
Why does Jonah flee from God? There's a bit of ambiguity, right? Uh, Could Jonah be scared? Well, maybe. That would seem kind of reasonable, wouldn't it? After all, Jonah is kind of the first missionary in the Bible, and uh, he didn't even get tapped on the shoulder by the church missionary society to go. He's leading the way, and so perhaps he's afraid. Another option is that uh, Jonah genuinely thinks that he could escape from God. That God's uh, geography is kind of limited to Israel, and if Jonah zips down to Tarshish, he'll be outside of God's electorate, and uh, you know God will have nothing to do at that point, perhaps. Um, or perhaps it's something else. We're not told. Why does Jonah run away? Well, in verse 4 to 15, we get another set of questions, and these come from Jonah's time on the boat. And they're all connected, and we can really summarize them. Uh, Why is Jonah so calm when everyone else is freaking out? Uh, But we'll look at the verses in just smaller sections. So we're going to start with 4 to 6. Why does Jonah fall asleep? Uh, By verse 4, Jonah's on board the ship to Tarshish. But things quickly start to get a bit hairy. A violent storm arises, threatening to break up the ship, and it's made pretty clear that this storm comes from God. It is directly targeting Jonah and his co-conspirators. And I'm not sure if you've ever spent much time on, uh, on a boat during the middle of the storm on the ocean. I haven't. I've not really been on many boats at all. But uh, I do like surfing. And I remember a particular occasion before I was married and much more sensible um, and my brain was fully developed where some, uh, some keen surfing friends dragged me out at Maroubra in Sydney, which is a surf beach. There'd been a big east coast low and the waves were really big, um, about eight foot, um, which you measure from the back of the wave. So that's kind of up to that bit. And then there's this bit, uh, which is about double that. And so I, I remember paddling over these waves and you have to kind of push through the top so you don't get sucked back down into the abyss and just seeing the um, the ocean floor give way underneath me um, was pretty scary and and set after set after set approaching on the horizon. I wonder if you've ever stood on some cliffs and watched a storm like that. And then you imagine being in a small wooden boat uh, far away from the shore several centuries before Christ in a storm like that. You can almost see the dark sky and the wind lashing the sails and the boats heaving up and down the waves. And so naturally, the sailors are in panic mode. They're crying out to their gods, they're chucking their Amazon boxes overboard that they've got for delivery, and in fact, they're doing exactly what you would expect people to do if they're on a small boat in the middle of a massive storm. And we're told that they're, uh, the extra detail, they're not Israelites, they're idolaters, they have this whole pantheon of gods that they worship. So that's what they're doing. What about Jonah? What's he doing? Well, verse 5, uh, Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. That sounds nice, doesn't it? Uh, our family had the privilege last year of visiting Hamilton Island with our extended family. And I thought, uh, verse 5, without the rest of the chapter, Sounds a little bit like a kind of a a brochure for a cruise around Hamilton Island. Here's Jonah and he's got his catamaran and he's slumbering away, cruising the sheltered waters of the Whit Sundays. Except uh, that's not where Jonah is. And the captain comes down and he finds Jonah and voices the question we're all wondering, how can you sleep? Get up, call on your God. Maybe he'll take notice of us so that we won't perish. It's at this point that things are starting to feel a little bit 
weird about Jonah. Um, Out of everyone on board, Jonah has a God who might be able to deal with the situation. And actually, Jonah, out of everyone on board, has something to be worried about. But he's deep asleep. Why? Let's move on to our next question. Verse 7 to 10, why does Jonah answer the sailors' questions with such confidence? Uh, By verse 7, things are starting to get a bit more serious. The sailors pause on panicking. They go, we're in trouble. We need to find out who to blame and kind of how to get out of the situation. And so their their response is to cast lots. Now, I don't know if you've ever cast lots. Uh, I haven't, really. And I think as people from a society which I guess we'd call materialistic or naturalistic, uh, where we can kind of explain things generally through the lens of science, the whole lot casting thing in this uh, passage seems a bit strange because we don't really normally associate storms with divine retribution. You know, if uh, you see on the Bureau of Meteorology that there's a storm coming or there's a boat accident, no one says, okay, who sinned? But in this case, I actually think the writer uh, shows us that that's the right question. Uh, It's not a silly thing that the sailors are doing. The storm is the direct result of Jonah's attempt to flee from God's presence. And so the sailors cast lots, uh, and for some reason Jonah plays along, not really sure why, and the lot by God's providence falls on Jonah. And so the sailors fire all these questions at Jonah, as in the reading. What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What's your country? What people are you from? Just trying to find out who is this guy and what's he done? And he says, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Or perhaps it's more triumphalistic. I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Not really sure how exactly he said it. But either way, at this point, things move from being puzzling to bizarre. And what Jonah says so matter-of-factly actually terrifies the sailors. And as the reader, it's kind of terrifying too. See, the sailors know, like us, that Jonah is running away from the Lord. They didn't know which Lord, but Jonah says, I worship the Lord, the one who made everything, the heaven, the sea, the dry land. And the knowledge frightens them. Imagine some of the questions going through their mind at this point. You say, how is this a good idea? And at this point, actually, I think some of our questions from earlier are starting to become clearer as well. We learn, first of all, that God doesn't actually have an electorate or a geographical domain. Uh, He's not the God of Israel. He's the God who made the heavens and the earth. He's the God who formed Israel and the God who rules Nineveh. And what's more, that Jonah actually knew that. He proclaims it. And so it's kind of strange. We're, we're left with this, this option that Jonah is highly, either highly inconsistent um, and his theology is way out of um, step with his practice or that Jonah didn't run away because he thought he could escape from God's domain. And that Jonah actually knew that God would find him at sea. And I guess that raises another question, which is even more unsettling, which is, could it be, could it be that Jonah always knew that he would have to face up to God's anger for his decision to run away, but he chose to run away anyway, 
knowing that that was the likely outcome. And maybe that explains some of his calmness. So he's calm because he knows exactly what's coming. He can't really do much about it, so he may as well just enjoy life and have a sleep while he waits. That's possible. We're not told exactly. Um, but just something to ponder. At this point, I just want to take a brief interlude, though, just to observe that this passage, I think, prods us uh, to think a little bit about how we think about people who are outside of our immediate geographical uh, sphere. I think most of us, um, the place that we kind of call home is really the centre point from which we see uh, the world. Uh, it's the kind of base from which we do geography. And uh, I noticed this recently when, uh, when we moved house, and if you have ever moved house, you, you might notice this as well, that uh, when you first move house, uh, you kind of measure the new things in your new space uh, in reference to where you used to live and where you used to call home. So the parks, you know how to get there from your old house, and the, the cafe, you know how to get there from your old house. It's a certain distance from your old house. But gradually, as you start to call a new place home, uh, you start to think of your house as the centre of things and you know how to get to all these different places from the house that you live at. Uh, home is kind of our, uh, you know, the centre point from which we view the world. And I don't think that's necessarily uh, a problem or a bad thing. But we do need to see that God is not like that. Um, God doesn't have a particular part of the world that he kind of looks out and sees other parts from. Uh, God is the ruler of Klemzig and of Brighton and of Kazakhstan and Brazil. Uh, that people in all of those places are actually of equal concern to him as we are. And even more than that, in Jesus, uh, God has offered salvation to all people. Uh, he's not the God only of South Australia or Adelaide or Australia. Um, his gospel is not just for us. And so I just want to ask, uh, does your life reflect that in any way? Um, does the, God being the ruler and the creator of all creation uh, impact your prayers? I hope it does because uh, we just prayed, in fact, um, that God's work would be at work uh, in all the world. Uh, does it impact your hopes and desires, your plans, your finances? Uh, Jeff mentioned last week uh, our longing to see a gospel church in every suburb in Adelaide. I think that is a terrific goal and a terrific uh, hope. And yet in many ways, as Jeff himself alluded last week, that goal is uh, in some ways too small. What about a gospel church in every suburb in the world? What would that be like? And of course that's uh, much beyond us as individuals uh, or even as a church or a network, but it is what God is doing. And so I think it's something that we ought to pray about and have some level of concern for. How will we be involved? But uh, let's keep moving on to that final question, verse 11 to 15. Uh, why does Jonah insist that the sailors throw him overboard? Now, in verse 11, things are starting to climax. Uh, the sea's getting rougher and rougher. The storm's not abating. The sailors are desperate. And they ask, well, what do we do to you to make the sea calm down? And they ask Jonah because he seems to be somewhat in control of the situation and know about this God. And Jonah says two things. Uh, first of all, pick me up and throw me into the sea and it will become calm. And second, I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Both of those two things sorry, are technically true. Uh, it definitely is Jonah's fault. And... Throwing him into the sea, as we'll, as we'll see, 
will calm the sea for the sailors. But Jonah's response, while it's true, I think is unsettling as well, uh, just like much of the rest of the story. Uh, and I think that's because Jonah really only presents one way forward. In Jonah's mind, the only way out of the situation is death at the hands of the God that he's rejected. Uh, there's no indication that he expects uh, any fish to pop up. Uh, there's no ex expectation really of salvation. There's no kind of demonstration of him being sorry. It's like Jonah's driving this high-speed getaway car away from divine justice, expecting to crash and burn. I just want to pause there and say, well, is Jonah's death the only way out? I think it's the sailors who give us the answer to this question. So we're at our final point, what we learn from the pagan sailors. The first hint that we get that Jonah did have some other options is the sailors' attempt to row back to land. See, he might be ready to die, but they're not ready to kill him just yet. And so they try unsuccessfully to row back to land. And the sea grows wilder, and it appears that they need to throw him in. But they don't go at that point, all right, that's a shame. Uh, they actually do something else, something quite remarkable. You see, the sailors know that Jonah's life is precious. Uh, they know that his blood could be on their heads. And so they pray for mercy. Uh, verse 14 to 16, then they cried out to the Lord, please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. And then they took Jonah and threw him overboard. And notice how God's response from 14b, uh, and the raging sea grew calm. I think at this moment, these guys become the unlikely heroes of the story. Uh, and they're the ones really who show us the most about how we should relate to the God who made the heavens and the earth. First thing they show us is the place of fear in relating to God. Uh, fear is uh, a kind of emotional response that can sometimes be misdirected. Uh, sometimes we can have it in the wrong situations. But sometimes it's right, like when a snake is chasing you, uh, you should be afraid. And it's also a right response uh, to the knowledge that God is angry. And Jonah's calm in, the, in face of the fact that God was angry with him was really hollow and deceptive. Uh, he should have been afraid too. And in fact, he had more reasons to be afraid than the sailors. Secondly, the sailors' plea for mercy, I think, shows that Jonah could have asked for mercy too. A call for mercy is the right response of people who are facing God's anger. And Jonah preferred to run headlong towards death while maintaining the image that he knew God best out of all of them. And thirdly, uh, God's response to the sailors that he did not hold them accountable actually shows that their desperate plea for mercy was heard, even though they didn't deserve it and they weren't his people. Uh, the God who sent Jonah to Nineveh, he's a God who's willing to show compassion upon those who ask for it. And we'll see, I think, as the story progresses, that that's really why he sent Jonah to Nineveh in the first place. And finally, the, the sailors' sacrifice, their vows, their thanksgiving, I think shows us that thankfulness and faithfulness are the right response to mercy. Uh, and Jonah's disobedience highlights the fact that he perhaps hadn't really received mercy in the first place. And so overall, the sailors really give us the picture of how we relate to God. The right way 
is to trust God uh, with fear that leads to mercy. The wrong way to relate to God is false confidence which leads to destruction. I just want to point out that that kind of sounds quite similar to the Christian gospel, uh, the news that we have in Jesus. And so I just want to uh, wrap up the talk by kind of highlighting some of the similarities between this story and what God has shown us as he sent his son. Uh, Friends, the Bible teaches us that actually we are all in a storm a little bit like Jonah's. We're all runaways who would rather do our own thing than do God's thing. And God is angry not with just with Jonah but actually with humanity for their decision to reject him. Uh, We all deserve God's anger which is promised to bring in a day of judgment, a storm if you like by which he'll judge the world. And uh, some verses behind me that I'm not going to reflect on too closely but just uh, you might want to go back and have a look at as we think about this idea. Now uh, in light of this kind of storm of judgment uh, we might feel a whole lot of different things before God. Uh, We might feel confident before God. We might feel knowledgeable. We might feel zealous. We might have a privileged sense of identity. But if none of that really uh, is very important if it doesn't actually turn aside God's anger. But God has provided a way out of the storm, a righteousness, a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And that leaves us with a choice, a little bit like Jonah and the sailors. Uh, We can run like Jonah headlong into death and judgment or we can recognise, like the sailors, that we're in trouble. It's fear. And to call on God for mercy through his son Jesus. And God promises in words very similar actually to uh, what the sailors did from uh, Romans on the screen that all who call on his name will be saved. So I just want to ask to finish up. uh, Do you fear God? Or are you calm and confident before him? Now, I think there is a place for calm confidence in the Christian life. But what's the basis of you being calm and confident? Is it just a feeling? Is it just something that you kind of think, ah, I can be calm because it doesn't really matter? Or is it grounded in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for you? This story teaches us that true calm actually only comes through fear and then through mercy. How about I pray uh, and lead us in prayer to finish up. Gracious Father, we want to thank you for this story and we want to thank you for your mercy on these sailors who knew almost nothing about you. We thank you for what they teach us about fearing you and receiving your mercy. And we thank you that you are willing to save hardened sinners like us. We want to pray that we would fear you as we should and so receive the calm that only you can offer, the calm of sins forgiven. And we pray, Father, that we would share your concern for the nations far beyond those that we see and experience in our own lives. We thank you that you are their God too. In Jesus' name, amen.